Welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. It's January. Vanessa, Happy New Year. We're in it. We're doing it. 2023 is upon us. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I, I imagine that January is not dry for you like some others. It's, I have never <laughs> done dry January. <laughs> no, I have not um, done dry January, nor do I plan on it. <laughs> uh, what about Veganuary? Vegan annuary. I've been struggling with how to actually say this. A January in which you go vegan. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm not quite sure where to put the stress on the word. Anyway, no, I, that's also, um, I eat a lot of plant-based food just in general. I'm not mm-hmm. vegan or vegetarian, but I like it. But I haven't actually ever committed to a whole month. Have you? No, I've committed to two weeks in my life and it was very expensive. Um, and, <laughs> tr- and and truthfully, I mean, that's, that's actually a serious thing. Like when I, when I was in New York uh, and I was very poor, I was like, I'm going to eat like plant-based for a while. And one, it was very challenging. And two, it was very expensive. So that's the longest I've ever gone. But I think both of us living in California, that lifestyle is a lot more achievable and attainable because of where we live. But also, uh, you know, it's January. I think it's a time where everybody reflects on this past year, where they want to be in the future. And so as a result, everyone likes to hit the reset or some people like to hit the reset button Mm -hmm. and move towards a healthier lifestyle. And so for some people that involves bringing more vegetables into their lives. And so, you know, I don't think that um, either of us are moving towards vegan anytime soon, but I do always love to incorporate more vegetables in my life. Mm -hmm. And since it's very clear that we're not getting rid of the wine anytime soon, I figured it was the perfect opportunity (laughs) (laughs) to, uh, to, to talk about how we can marry those two ideas together by still drinking wine and bringing more plants into the fold. And who better to assist with that than the wine director for the rest that has gone full plant-based. So please welcome to the show the wine director at 11 Madison Park, three Michelin-starred restaurant, Gabrielle DeVella. Welcome. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year to the two of you also. And yeah, very, very thrilled to be here with you. We're really excited. I, I, um, I never thought that we would do a podcast on vegan wine pairings. And not that we're going to like <laughs> I think for anyone listening, it's like, I'm not a vegan. I'm turning this off. It's not what this show is going to be. Calm down. Yeah. We're going to talk about <laughs> plant-based and how to, you know, really how to to marry something that has traditionally been, I think, a little bit scary for some people. You know, how, like, does mm-hmm. what wines do vegetables actually you know, work with? And we think of steak and we think of cab and we think of cheese and we think of Sauvignon Blanc. But, like, vegetables have traditionally been a little bit of a pain point when it comes to traditional wine pairing. So that's really mm-hmm. what we're going to focus on today. And I also want to dive into this transition that I love Madison Park had because yes. wild, amazing, but like wild. And I'm so curious about how it all went down <laughs> for you. So before we get into that, it's going to be a juicy episode, mm-hmm. beet juice mostly, carrot juice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to jump into some cultural events that are happening around the wine world. Vanessa, you and I kind of touched on something that's been happening in Bordeaux in a previous episode, mm-hmm. but there has actually been not sort of an update on this. And I think it's worth mentioning because there's there's a bit more that we didn't get into. And since Gabrielle's here with us, yeah. I want to talk about this article titled The Existential Crisis of Bordeaux's Small Grape Growers. Yeah, And so, you know, we had talked about the fact that because of the, you know, who would have thought that like Europe isn't drinking as much wine and there's yeah. an overproduction of Bordeaux happening. Um, but that is the case. And there is a surplus of Bordeaux wine at an entry level. We're not talking about premium. Mar- Chateau Margaux is not going on sale anytime soon. So you can all just like calm down. Calm down. We're talking about. Sadly. We're t- sadly. <laughs> sadly. Sadly, no. It is still the same price and probably going to get more expensive. But what we're talking about is the the more entry level Bordeaux production. And so people are very upset, so much so that there were a thousand angry vignerons uh, and their allies marching through the streets of Bordeaux and right up to the doors of the Bordeaux Wine Council, the CIVB, really upset that Europe was not going to subsidize the grubbing or the the yanking out of those vineyards, which is essentially what needs to happen. Because in Bordeaux, with the surplus being down, and people having vineyards and no nowhere, <laughs> nowhere for these grapes and these wines to go, there really aren't a lot of options. You have to cultivate your mines in Bordeaux or you have to yank them out. Those are your two options. And so they're what they're asking for is 10,000 euro per hectare. And that is 
clearly not going to happen. So a very complicated issue. I'm curious on both of your thoughts. Gabrielle, I know you've got some some long history in Europe. You're uh, born to both a French and Italian family. Where do you, where What are you seeing? What do you think about all this? It is a complicated issue. And I think Bordeaux is definitely one of those first, gen- first regions that really highlight the issue. Being that, like you, like you mentioned, like the big shadow, the big names, they're always going to do good mm-hmm. because they have such an outreach worldwide that collectioners going to keep buying those wines, like regardless. And we've seen it in the past 10 years, like regardless of like the price increase, um, mm-hmm. the wine still sells out without any issue. When it comes to a smaller crawler, I mean, as I want to say as a generation and like right now worldwide, we are all drinking less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's a, that's a fact. And when all those, Smaller grower, more entry-level style of wine will be available in small wine shop or small uh, supermarket in France in the Bordeaux region would have been like drunk throughout the week by by locals. That is less and less the case. Mm. And I think Bordeaux has especially this issue because the region is so big and so complex compared to other. Like we can't compare Bordeaux to Burgundy. Burgundy, like sure. the diversity of appellation, the small size of the plot and crop, Burgundy will never have an issue in a way because when Merceau is sold out, when we move to Saint-Aubin and when Saint-Aubin will be sold out, we'll move to Rully and like et cetera, et cetera. We will move to other smaller appellations that will also sold out. It's, uh, it's a big question mark. Vanessa, what are you seeing in terms of like people importing and exporting out of Bordeaux, are you seeing people really trying to move these more entry-level wines? Are you seeing a surplus of that? Or is, are there more wines being brought to your doorstep? I haven't really seen it in the United States shifting that yet. I don't see people, people aren't like knocking at my door every day, like, please buy all this Bordeaux. But but it's always, <laughs> but I will say about Bordeaux is it's always available. Yes. It's so different where like Napa, it's like, you know, there's a prestige in saying like, oh, I only harvested, you know, fill in the blank per acre. Right. And it sounds better, the smaller the number that you say, but Bordeaux has never been afraid of quantity, which has made them great and really important in the global marketplace. But then when something like this happens, and also I think something important to remember is there's a huge outlay of cash. If they can't grub up the vineyards and they're forced to harvest, I mean, there's the viticulture, there's the the labor that that takes, you know, yeah. during the whole year, plus harvest and labor is hard to find now globally as, as right. we know. So you have all of that. You have, you know, barrels, packaging, you've got to you have bottles and corks and it's a never sort of ending bill that's arriving on your door as a vintner. So it's, it's, I'm sure really stressful, you know, and for a lot of these people, I'm sure this is like a multi-generational family business. Yeah. And I think that was one of the points made in the article, right? Generational issues are happening. People are trying to retire and they can't because Mm -hmm. there's nowhere for these, for there's no one to take over at this point. Mm -hmm. How much of this do you think is a marketing issue? Is Bordeaux, Affected by the fact that I think our generation and potentially younger generations see Bordeaux as our parents and our grandparents' wine. And so we're just not only are we not drinking as much, we're also not interested in Bordeaux. And do you think that if it is a marketing issue, could it potentially be rectified in that way? I think there is definitely a bit of that. And I have definitely experienced it in the in the past and especially in, in London in, in my previous positions, where you can see the new generation not wanting to drink what their parents and grandparents used to drink. But also like a significant part of the bottle production will be sweet wine. Yeah. Uh, and we drink less and yeah. less and less sweet wine. And I think like it is definitely one appellation or like a few appellations, especially Barsac and Sauterne, that have like tackled the issue for the past ten years of trying to like reverse this trend of like mm. A sauterne has to be drunk with 15 years of age. Well, actually, they are shifting and adapting their uh, aging method, winemaking uh, wine technique to make sure that those bottles are actually approachable younger. And there's been like some chateaux that have been like also advertising and communicating on like adding soda water to it. An Ikem spritz is what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Ikem is probably the one that's a little bit on the side in this issue. But definitely, uh, it's... There is definitely a market, uh, a marketing issue. And like, it is again, like wine and marketing. And especially when we talk about like, um, quote unquote, the old world and like French, Italian, Spanish, American, uh, and, and German, German wine. Like it is so hard. There is so much culture and so much kind of like tradition going into the label, into all mm-hmm. those kind of things that like really approaching it with a pure marketing standpoint. It is challenging. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the other thing that we maybe sometimes forget, uh, when we're talking about the actual, grape growing and production side of things is 
all of this is controlled by the government. This is subsidized, controlled by the government, regulated by the government. This is not something we experience here in the United States in our wine growing regions. And so while there are a lot of pros to that in Europe, there's also a lot of cons like this where mm-hmm. you can't just let your vines go by the wayside. You can't just like go to Greece for the summer and just let them hang out, right? So I I think when we're talking about regulatory uh, conditions for some of these markets, that is something to consider. Vanessa, you brought up something when you're talking about uh, the actual production of these Mm -hmm. wines, right? Because even if you harvest the grape, you have to turn them into wine. And that is another issue. Uh, Not that this is all negative, Nancy, because I do want to mention that like Bordeaux's delicious and we should be drinking more oh, yeah. of it. Yeah. But um, but but Wired recently reported that wine is getting pricier thanks to a logistical nightmare. And I'm sure both of you have experienced this with trying to get allocations on time. And, I, you know, living in Napa, we certainly hear about it from our friends who are actually producing wine. Mm-hmm. But like so many other industries, we are experiencing supply chain issues. We're experiencing a lot of logistical issues related to not only the raw materials like grapes, but also... So as you mentioned, Vanessa, corks, glass mm-hmm. labels, and all of the complications around that. Something like glass, uh, the uh, John Rule, the CEO for Trefethen Family Vineyards in Oak Knoll, not too far from us in Napa. Uh, glass used to be a six to eight, used to be six to eight months is now like 12 to 18 months. Now, why is that an issue? Well, one, obviously they want to move these wines as quickly as possible for cash flow, but also for a lot of wineries, and I'm not sure what the case is for for Trefethen, a lot of wineries don't have their own bottling facilities. So when you have delays on glass and like cork and your capsule enclosures, by the way, you're going to see a lot more bottles without the actual capsule enclosures coming up because a lot of people have been able to get them. Mm -hmm. When it takes that much time and when they don't arrive on time, you can't just reschedule your your mobile bottler. You've got to book those things way in advance. And so if you miss that appointment, it's not like, hey, can you come back tomorrow? As they mentioned in the article, it's like, well, I don't have this. So like, let's reschedule for six months out because that's how far out these guys are booked. And so it's it's presenting a lot of complications. I'm curious, have either of you, how you guys have seen that manifest in your respective positions? Just logistical delays, but shipping charges going up um, for everybody. Mm. Cost, as you said, of, of goods. But, and and I'll say, you know, we experienced, you know, we make a wine called... Um, Mayan and I make a wine called Pot de Cheval and we had to order glass like over a year in advance for, for the reason that you said, because it's just too risky. They're like, well, we have it now, but we might not have it <laughs> six months from now, you know? So it's just like, well, what do you do? So again, going back to like all these things that cost money and then you have to, you know, so we had to, we had to do it. It's too risky not to have your packaging. And the other thing to consider too, is you, you know, you made a great point, Amanda, about like mobile bottling lines for a lot of these small um, wineries and or even if they have their own bottling line, it impacts the quality and the style of the wine, how mm. long you leave it in tank or barrel. Totally. So people might actually be forced to have a different style <laughs> of wine that they're that they're bottling right. if it's pushed off for, you know, weeks to months to God knows how long. Right. And there's just one other d- definite example, someone who I won't name, but you definitely both know, um, told me recently over some cocktails about a surcharge that he got for his glass order, where normally there would be maybe like a $3,000 surcharge every year he got a $35,000 unexpected surcharge bill. Oh my gosh. They're like, well, that's just what it is. You know? And so again, you're like, well, do I take the glass? Do I not take the glass? And of course you take it, but it's, it's no joke. It is really no joke what this article is talking about. I definitely see it. Yeah. It's, I definitely see more like the, the later stage of the issue because again, it is a very big issue. I'm obviously less involved with like all the packaging and like all the conditionments of, of, of the wine at the at the winery, but like just seeing like the shipping delay and like all the issue that obviously the past couple of years has brought up. Obviously, I'm gonna talk with mostly with the market that I uh, that I've been experiencing the most in the past ten years, which is Europe. And based in London, you had Brexit that happened, and you had the pandemic, and like you had a shortage shortage of drivers. All that creating such a such a craziness in the wine world, and some pallets of wine that were sitting in Burgundy that was supposed to be picked up one day. Well. Some transporters never heard of those palettes of wine until like two months after when the wine, the winemaker would reach out back. It's like, Hey, by the way, your palette is still here. <laughs> and it's, it's when you ship wine, obviously from Europe to America or to America to Europe, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, uh, the minus delay that you have on the glass, on the label, on the person that's coming to, to bottle your wine at the winery, to the transporter, to the custom, obviously, because there's been a huge delay at the, at the customs. Mm-hmm. All that's set up. 
and and it adds up financially and obviously in time also. And you know, Vanessa, I you you brought up such a great point. I never considered the fact that these these you know your fresh Sauvignon Blanc that maybe you're gonna enjoy in. <laughs> From a 2021 vintage, maybe now has a little bit more texture because it's been sitting <laughs> just a little bit longer, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's a good point. It's a really good point, right? I guess in some cases it's like, well, oh, it has to age a little longer. But then, like, what if you needed those barrels? What if you needed those used barrels for future? So, like, it really does sort of like it's like a domino effect. Yeah. Thank you, a domino effect. Mm-hmm. God, sometimes on these podcasts, I'm just at a loss for words. <laughs> sometimes I'm good, sometimes I'm not. Um, well. I guess this is a great time for us to hope that you think that we're great because I'm going to ask you all to like, subscribe, and review this podcast. Uh, As we always do, it's really, really helpful if you're enjoying the show, enjoying uh, Vanessa and I ramble with a a couple other people on the show about Domino Effect. Uh, If you enjoy that, please go ahead and leave us a review. And uh, if you do leave us a review on the podcast, we might might read it out loud like I'm about to do right now. And this one is from Kuma24762 who said, Great podcast. This podcast is great. And I couldn't stop listening to the episode with Burt Kreischer. It's a good one. It's a good one. That's a good one. It's a really good one. (laughs) I must have listened to it two to three times. This the other interviews are fantastic overall. Great conversations. Thank you so much, uh, Takuma. Thank you for those super kind words. I couldn't agree with you more. I loved that episode. In fact, I think I was sitting in this exact same spot where I am today, uh, recording the episode, thinking, wow, like how lucky are we both to Mm -hmm. be able to get to do this? As always, if you are loving this podcast and you're not drinking with us, there's something wrong. It's time to join the podcast wine club. It's the Wine Access Unfiltered Wine Club. We're going to ask you to open your bottle that's in your shipment. It's a good one. Not that they're all not great, but uh, you guys are probably familiar by this point with our friend Dan Petrosky. Uh, This episode, we're going to be focusing on his wine, the Mexican Anya from the 2021 vintage. Listen, we don't often get really cool allocations like this. We get really cool allocations, but this one was really special thanks mm-hmm. to Gabrielle who uh, called up Dan. You know, both of us live near Dan and yeah. know him really well, and yet and Gabrielle gets the pool around here. So, like, I don't know. We got to buy him, like, better <laughs> better gin for his cocktails or something. But uh, anyway, the way this all worked out was uh, we asked Gabrielle what he'd like, and he's like, I really like Massacan. I'm really like, yeah, so do we, but, like, I don't know if we can get it for the podcast. And then Dan was like, sure, we'll make it happen. He was like, oh, Gabrielle wants it. Oh, 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 oh it's for Gabrielle. Okay. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I thought we had He's pulled. Awesome. <laughs> I'm teasing, obviously. But uh, but yeah, so that's where we're going to be drinking. So if you are drinking with us, go ahead and grab that wine. We'll be back in just a second to dive into Veganuary. All right. Well, cheers, everyone. This wine cheers. is delicious. And as I as I sit here... And I sip this, Gabrielle. I've got it. I've got to ask you. For those of you who aren't unfamiliar with Love Medicine Park, we have talked about this before. This is an amazing restaurant, three Michelin starred restaurant in New York City, uh, one of the best in the world. It's gotten every accolade that a restaurant could possibly get. And Gabrielle is the wine director. But a couple of years ago, actually not too long ago, um, the restaurant went from your traditional French American inspired cuisine. Yeah. Uh, and it it went fully plant-based. It made the headlines. Everybody was talking about it. There were a lot of a lot of opinions uh, on the topic. <laughs> but I have to ask, uh, Gabrielle, how did you find out about the transition from what Lev Madison Park was to becoming an all vegan restaurant? I found out in February uh, twenty twenty. Uh, and Eleven Mason Park reopened with the current menu or with the current format. I should say, in June 2020. Uh, at the time, I was in London. I was working for Chef Daniel Home already. I was the one director for a restaurant called Davis & Brook. Uh, and with, I found out, like the same way as uh, the other manager back in London, when we had uh, a little bit of a meeting with the people at uh, the HQ in, in London and with Chef, who, who explained us basically his vision for the future. And I think uh, at first, we were definitely a little bit shocked. <laughs> shocked in the way that... There is some chef that I had such an impact uh, with some really iconic dishes. And when it comes to Chef Home, like at the time, he was uh, definitely celery wood cooked in a pig bladder. It was the duck, dried duck with honey glaze, lavender, beautiful piece of meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, foie gras was obviously a big part of the menu. So like shifting from almost an extreme to another uh, was definitely a big shock. But like speaking with chef, it all made sense. And using the platform that Eleven Mason Park has, was definitely an amazing opportunity for us. Like, it would have been a smaller restaurant. Would have the impact be the same? Probably not. Would the resources to make that happen be the same? Absolutely not either. So it's really like a conjunction of so many factors that 
make this change really, really unbelievable. Were there any hints leading up to it? Like, were there rumors? Had you seen anything? The only hint we should have all picked up on is that vegetable has always been present and also always been like some sort of a highlight in, in Eleven Mason Park history. Uh, remember years ago, one of the most successful dish that has been on the menu was a carrot tartar. Mm. Yes, there were some egg yolk. Yes, there were like uh, some animal protein in it. But like showcasing table side and making a tartar out of carrots, that's that's something. Vegetable has always been in chef's mind. Well, I have a question. Were there any... I, your list is amazing, by the way. It really is a... It's like, it's a book. Um, there are so many... Amazing producers, regions, styles, varieties. But were there any wines that you either then added to the list or took off your list when the menu changed to plant-based? So first, I'm going to bounce back on something like the list is really, really amazing. And that's a testament for the past 25 years of my predecessors, both wine directors and all the wine team. I always look at myself as just being the guardian of this list for the time of my tenure and like hopefully set up the next generation for success the same way like the previous generation has done for the team right now and myself. And, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, when it comes to the reopening and like, like approaching the wine list, we did not necessarily like look at like removing any producer. Like I truly believe that a, a wine list, and especially when we talk about a wine list such as Eleven Mason Park wine list, like, which is like, like without any pretension, like a world-class wine list, like where we really want these leaks to be um, to be looked in by by many people across the world, like just out of curiosity and like just just for some some ideas. Uh, it didn't feel good to like just scrap producer that we might have worked with for mm-hmm. the past twenty five years and that supported us and we supported and we share common common belief and common direction in where we want to go. Didn't feel right to like scrap them and and also like like chef would say like. We're not the vegan police. If someone wants to come at the restaurant, have our menu with like a 2019 Napa cab made with a lot of new French oak, that might not be the best pairing. But if that pleases you and that's the moment you want to have in the restaurant, we have the responsibility to make that happen. And we need to make sure that those wines are present on the list. It, it's such a good point. And I, I worked at a, a Napa Valley steakhouse with an all Napa Valley wine list, right? So a lot of cab. Uh, and we had seafood towers, right? And so people will come in and they get their 2018 scarecrow and they'd have it with their seafood tower, you know, raw fish, <laughs> lobster, <laughs> yeah. lobster, oysters, whatever. <laughs> and it was great. You know, it was, it was kind of like, well, if that's what makes you happy, that's great. Like, I, I think the, I think one of the things that we all have to remember as wine professionals is that it doesn't have to be the perfect pairing all the time. It has to be the right wine and the right dish for you. And if you love both, mm-hmm. you can love them together, even if it may not be the most formulaic yeah. approach, right? I am curious, you know, though, as a, as a wine professional, was there research that you had to do to further understand how wine can work with with plant-based pairings because you know we're not just talking about like chef putting a couple of diced beets on a plate right these are no very (laughs) very beautiful very elaborate like if anything there's probably more time that goes into the platings of these dishes did you look to any other plant-based restaurants around the country or even in the world to further understand what you could maybe do on a different level with the wine list? Yes and no. I mean, we always look for inspiration from all over the place. But when I took on the job and started to work on my first pairings, because obviously like, it is a part of like the wine program when, when we work with the plant-based menu, the wine pairing has to be on point. And it was a lot of just trying the food and trying a few ideas. And, and really like... I try to detach myself and I try to force the team to do so uh, as well, to detach myself to what has been done, what was the rules and what other people might be doing, even though it might be a, an amazing influence and an amazing um, ideas, but just to kind of approach it with like a blank page. It's again like an amazing opportunity for us because we we approach a menu and we approach wine pairing with like no boundaries. Uh, and I think that's definitely something that's in, in the kitchen, like, you can feel like there is no more boundaries of like, we have to have a forgot, we have to have a butterfly cluster, we have to have the duck. And like every season, like the set of those dishes will change. The focus that I try to have with the team to try to, to keep ourselves into, into our group and use the entire team as a resource to really have everyone to bring ideas, everyone to say, oh, I tasted that like two months ago and that could be a good idea. Like, Okay, let's let's try it out. You know, it's a lot of trial and, and a lot of fail. 
uh, I have to be completely honest uh, with you. Sure. Like there has been some things that we tried and like didn't work out and like we review our page and we, and we move forward. So uh, we've been very, um, I want to say very much in autarcy in, in, in that sense. What are some examples of things that didn't work? We used to put uh, Chocolina from Amestoy last uh, summer menu with a beautiful dish. It was a radish tostada with tamburi, uh, which is uh, a small bean that's coming from the summer cypress tree in Japan. Uh, and when we talk about it, like you were mentioning, like it's not just a couple of cubes of beets in a, in a dish. Like right. the seeds are like, unharvested they are dried season etc it's like it's the labor and like the time that goes into uh into the menu is almost more important now that it used to be uh mm-hmm. and so we used to uh we used to pair that with a chacolina which at first we thought was a really cool pairing but turn out that you know at the end of the day the guest is right and like if the guest perception is not right like it did not work out because that wasn't the right setting for it. Was it was it a function of like did people? I mean, chocolina tends to be a less expensive wine. Was it just people didn't think that it was fancy enough, or pretty much? Yeah, like yeah. the the main the main uh, negative feedback we had was like, yeah, they they had this sensation that it didn't work out. Like it, they didn't had for their mind for their money in a way. It didn't have like the wow factor. Yeah, exactly. And as soon as we thought that, like we scrub it and like we. We move on to uh, on to something else, and mm. and and, does, and that was it. Is there one vegetable that if you see it, you know, chefs working on a new menu, you see it, you're like, oh no, like that is so hard to pair. Asparagus, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Which the the season is is coming very 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 uh, quickly to um, upon us, but it's definitely a product that you you ask the same question, I guess, to any any sommelier or any wine professional across the world, like. Artichoke and, and asparagus are definitely two very difficult pairing, and and I think it's when we need as as sommelier to to take a step back and let the dish shine on its own, almost like. And it's always the the way I like to look at pairing is there's two different pairing. Either do we want the food to shine or do we want the wine to shine? Mm. And finding this balance between and throughout the entire menu of like, all right, this is like definitely a, a vegetable that's gonna that's going to clash with many, many wine. Like, all right, let's find a wine that's going to settle like right underneath mm-hmm. uh, and be such a beautiful cushion for it to really shine through and like express itself. I want to talk a little bit about the more technical aspects of food and wine pairing when it comes to plant-based. Obviously, we're not dealing with any sort of animal fats or animal protein. You know, two things that typically lend themselves to, to making a wine and pairing experience really fun. Dishes also tend to be a little less salty. You tend to have a lot less, a lot fewer things. Although, of course, I'm, I think when we're talking about Chef Hume's dishes, like they probably have all those things in spades, right? But, <laughs> um, but when you're talking about like food and wine pairing 101, right? You've got salt, fat, acid, heat, and you've got all the pairable components of that. What are some of the rules, if any, I mean, outside of the, the fact that like you can pair anything with anything, right? As long as you like it. Yeah. Are there like technical rules when it comes to plant-based pairings? No, I think there is element in the dish that we definitely pay a little bit more attention to. Like bitterness is definitely one of them. Acidity also. Uh, Chef Hume has always had like a culinary signature in a way of like having dish which are really fresh with a lot of uh, acidic component into it, uh, which weren't so much of an issue in the past because that was part of the, the garnish or part of the sauce. And like that would be just an element when no, like you have this, those dishes which are really flavorful, really intense and where all those texture elements and like again, the bitterness and the acidity are definitely two elements that we we really, really look after very carefully. How do you work with bitterness? What are there specific regions, specific grapes, specific producers? How do you combat bitterness? Because if we're talking about vegetables, a lot of vegetables have bitterness. You mentioned asparagus before, great example. Obviously, it depends on like how intense the bitterness would be present on the dish. But like I will always try to go away from anything with higher alcohol volume. So like Northern Hemisphere would be definitely... Uh, a more interesting area to explore, like wine with a little bit more acidity, lower sugar content, obviously, like some dry reasoning, some some Grenadine who might bring a little bit of like this this textural element that the Gruner tend to tends to bring. Like, and after if you go and dig a little deeper, like like there is some producer, like we work a lot with 
uh, Emre Knoll, who, who's going to have like those style of Gruner Vekliner, who has a little bit more of like this generosity and texture and richness to it. We're going to really like englobe and like like capture the bitterness uh, to to balance it out a little bit. So that will be definitely some areas. And when we're looking at like asparagus, for instance, like yeah, Gruner Riesling will be definitely some areas that we were going to play with. And also sometimes, you know, like if you look after asparagus, you get this, this, this greenness, uh, this leafiness, uh, coming through it. Sometimes it's actually fun to actually play on that and bring something that's a little, have this feeling of little underripe greenness coming to it. And you kind of match them up together and, and with the right, uh, the right match, it works, it works really, really well. And it's actually really, really fun. That's interesting you said about sweetness. So when you're talking about bitterness, sweetness does not combat bitterness. You tend to go more dry to work with bitterness. Yeah, you you work with something a little drier, but mm-hmm. you need a little bit of texture. But, text, mm-hmm. but texture is what you're after. Texture is definitely what we're after, yeah. It's I mean, so the sweetness, because the, the thing also is like, I want to say the bitter of the dish, usually they will come sooner in the menu. Mm. So we also don't necessarily want to start with something that's overly intense, overly powerful, overly sweet, or like will be really so much out there that like in the pro- in the progression of the pairing would not necessarily make sense and be maybe a little too soon for that. Mm. Uh, so obviously like any wine pairing, we have to think about the progression of the menu, the progression of the courses, what's coming before, what's coming after. Uh, and, and so that's why usually when we, when we come across again, asparagus or uh, artichoke for that matter, or, or those kind of products, uh, they might tend to come in the first like two, three courses of the menu. Uh, and so we can play with something a little drier, a little more um, underneath, but still, again, like thinking about texture, thinking about like this this richness, this roundness you can have on the palate without looking for sugar. That kind of describes the wine that we have on our glass right now. 100%. Right? 100%. (laughs) So very Arabic. So so we've got the Mexican Anya. And um, for those who are not familiar, this is a California white wine that Dan Barchowski makes. Uh, This is 51% Tokai Frulano, 33% Ribola Jala, and 16% Chardonnay. And so I think this is a really good example of a wine that has a lot of texture, still has great acidity, is really aromatic, but is bone dry, right? You, there's no, Meaning there's no residual sugar on this wine. Is bitterness something that you would pair with this wine or would you go in a different direction if you were going plant-based? I think Dan, on top of being an absolute amazing human being, makes absolutely stunning wines. And Anya especially is one of the the perfect white wine to pair with plant-based in the way that you have this versatility into it. Like you can play with temperature and make it a little bit sharper, a little bit drier even, leaner by serving it a little colder. If you serve it a little warmer, you get a little bit more texture. The Chardonnay can Mm -hmm. start to come through and a little bit more oiliness. And you have again like this versatility of like, yeah, with, with bitterness and like with something a little, I would say, fresher on the dish, that works so well. But also because it takes a lot of influence from like, white Italian grape varieties and, and like this kind of like direction, like the Friuli, uh, Trentino, like the northeastern part of Italy. You have so many of those grape varieties that, mm-hmm. and those style of wine that works really well uh, with vegetable. I mean, Italy at large is, is a country where, quote unquote, plant-based, like cooking just with olive oil and vegetable, local vegetable, like it's in the culture for centuries. And looking into those, those, those regions for, I don't know, Verdicchio and those, those style of grape varieties also, is definitely super interesting and, and works amazingly well. Was there a fear or an uncertainty that going plant-based would affect your three-star Michelin status? 100%, for sure. I've worked in other submission star, submission star, etc., um, in some institutions where, like, when you get the Michelin star for the first time, it's always, like, it is it is the goal. It, like, you, you want one when you want one, you want two when you have two, you want three. And when you have three, every year is a roller coaster in a way. And every year, like when the Michelin comes around, um, like everyone is a little stressed. And I want to say that, especially in the past October, uh, when the Michelin was released in, in New York City, yes, we had fear. Like, and the same fear that we had when we reopened the restaurant and when the first review came in and like we walked and we reworked some, some few things. And like, it is for us so important and such a statement in a way uh, to have people like the mission guide to recognize what we do and that recognize that it is the direction in which the, the, the industry is going. 
Uh, and when I say that, I'm, I'm not saying that every single restaurant in the world has to be plant-based. That's absolutely not the point here. Uh, the point is just to show that you can do a luxury, quote-unquote luxury uh, experience with without any animal protein. And that's kind of almost like an art performance on its own. And when Michelin came around and like awarded us three Michelin stars, I was like, we actually threw uh, quite a big party in the <laughs> As you should. Uh, As well, you should. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it, was, it was wild. It's so amazing to see. I think, you know, when, when the restaurant announced that they were going to plant-based, there were a lot of text exchanges like, how is this going to work? Like, is this the end of an era? Is this, you know, are we ever going to see a Love Medicine Park the way it was again? But it's been, it's been really rewarding as an outsider looking in to see, you know, such a big risk taken by such a legendary team and a legendary chef. And the reward is, has been amazing to watch. Thank you. I've been fortunate enough to have, uh, have dined at EMP twice um, since the, since the plant-based menu once in the summer. And then most recently in December, when Wine Access partnered with EMP, we had a private dinner upstairs and showcased what, what Wine Access does along with, with um, Gabrielle's pairings as well. And, and the menu and there was the final savory dish you have to uh, help me if I'm getting this wrong, but it was maitake mushrooms with juniper and pine and I think seitan. Yeah. And it yeah. it was mind-blowingly good. And everyone around the room just kind of got really quiet and just like couldn't – just needed a minute to kind of take it all in. And what I really want to compliment you on is that unanimously – in that dining room, everyone was like, this is one of the best dishes that I've ever had. And it wasn't in context of plant-based menus. It was all menus that this was one of the most extraordinary dishes that that anyone had had. You know, when you're when you're a chef and even when you're a SOM, right, you are often working with animal protein, which is fairly consistent day after day, month after month, year after year, right? Like we, you know, beef cattle will change a little bit in the marbleization. You can change the cut. For the most part, like you kind of know what you're expecting. When it comes to plant-based, you're dealing with a lot more variables, right? Not not every asparagus is going to be the same level of bitterness. Not every uh, season from year to year is going to be exactly the same. You're dealing with a lot of factors when it comes to raw materials that you have absolutely no control over because it is entirely Mother Nature. It's a lot like wine in those ways. What are some of the the ways in which you deal with that as a, as a sommelier? I mean, are you are you just kind of like playing roulette and hoping that like there is some consistency or like there is uh, many things that come in play. First, we have uh, and we started a couple of years ago, right uh, in the middle in the middle of the pandemic, with partner and we started a farm upstate New York, Magic Farm. Uh, so most of our product will come from this farm. So that kind of allow us to have a farm only dedicated to Eleven Mason Park. And that kind of allows us to forecast the crop. But we're not a farmer and nobody within uh, the company is, yeah. is a farmer. So it's also something that we have been trying to figure out for the past two years of like, all right, when do we need to plan that for it to be ready when we want to launch the menu, given that usually um, about four months in advance, we already know when the next menu dates, which dinner we are going to launch this new menu. Meaning that we need this crop to be ready by that time. And like you say, like, like it's natural after all. Like it's like asking a winemaker to every single year, like harvest at this exact same day. Every year will be different. So I think there is one strength that we have in this restaurant and in this company is that we love change. Things, we expect change. Things are going to change. We're going to embrace the change. Uh, and we're just going to figure it out in a way. And like if something is not working the way we planned on, where we're going to fall back on a plan B in a way. And so we just try to get our ear in the kitchen as much as possible, have the conversation open with chefs uh, across the board as much as possible so we can also have a backup plan if something doesn't work. I, I think, you know, as we think about plant-based pairings, like how much has your opinion on plant-based changed? How much has it informed what you're doing at home? How much has it informed you as a sommelier? A lot. I mean, your listener will have figured by now I have a very strong French <laughs> accent. I come from the middle of France where uh, animal protein is has been part of my culture. My father is Sicilian. Uh, so again, like there's a lot of protein being mostly seafood product uh, in, in the culture from, from there. So I grew up with, with animal protein, but I think I'm also part of a generation that 
at first we didn't necessarily realize that those resources are not unlimited. It's just realizing that chef should by now be able to, to see that within their menu, they can integrate one, two, maybe three dishes, depending on the size of the menu, that are fully plant-based. Uh, and this small change has a tremendous effect. If you think uh, and you, you loop out and you zoom out and you look at a, a year consumption, um, that's what we started to, uh, to kind of talk about when we launched Even Mason Horn uh, a few months back to, to try to encourage people to have one day in the week or one day in the, every two weeks or one day in the month, like just plant-based food, one day. Uh, and Monday. again, if you had Zalem. Exactly, Meatless Monday. Mm -hmm. But it definitely pushed me to question more and more what restaurants and what menus are and how we can push that further. And again, especially in a Michelin star setting where there is still this fear of like, yeah, if you go in a Michelin star setting that's, and, I, and I want a vegan menu, it's going to be like only two salads, two beets, and uh, maybe a peach at the end to finish when there's so much more to do, so much more. Like it's the... the it is a limitless world when we talk about plant-based in a way. Yeah. Where does red wine fit into the equation? Like, I think when people think about plant-based, we, or at least my mind immediately goes to white wine, right? Like red, typically, you know, it has tannin. It likes to bind with animal protein. Typically doesn't work in a, in a, uh, in a more traditional aspect of food and wine pairings. So where... Yeah. And I, I know that your wine list is deep in Burgundy and Bordeaux. And as you Napa mentioned, Cab. 2019, Napa Cab, like they want to have red <laughs> wine. So where does that fit into yeah. the equation? How do you manage that? Do you just let them do what they so, want? Or are there actually dishes that work with it? There is a lot of dishes that works with it. And especially like right now, we are at the end of the full menu and about to launch our winter menu. Like we had the, the mushroom season that's are just perfect for for red wine and like being like going into a lighter style of red wine uh depending the dish and like the the, the component of the dish and the intensity of the dish uh to a more structured red wine but instead of going for a younger vintage of those structured red wine we're gonna force ourselves to to source like older vintages or to pick into our cellar older vintages that's again like the luxury that we have here to have more than 20 years of of, of buying and of a, a cellar being built uh, we have a deepness in the list and in the vintages, which is uh, which is a huge luxury. And when we talk again about mushroom, like you go in Piedmont, you go in the Napa, in I don't know the mid nineties are absolutely stunning cabernets to to pair with, with with those kind of dishes. Beyond mushrooms, what like what else? What else goes with red wine that's plant based? You get Satan, and again, like it's it is important to. Like think about plant-based and especially at the level that we're trying to execute it as not only one ingredient okay. uh, in the dish, which is often what we what we picture. And myself also, like a couple of years back, you would have asked me uh, this question. I would say like, yeah, well, a cabbage, like what am I going to pair with a cabbage? Well, it's not only a cabbage. It's like a cabbage that might be marinated in a little bit of soy. Uh, it might be roasted. It might be pickled. It might be... So it's really like a dish-to-dish -dish mm. kind of thing. Like they, it, there is so little generality of like this red wine will go with every single vegetable there is or like, mm. but if you look at beet, for instance, to go back on, on, on the beet thing, uh, <laughs> beet is, is an amazing product to pair with red wine. Like you have this natural mm. earthiness coming from it. You have like this sucrosity coming from it, this sweetness coming from it. That if you look at like a bottle of Pinot, uh, or a, gan a Grenache, maybe like those kind of, those kind of gravity and those kind of wine match superbly well with with the beat but again it all depends on like how you are going to prepare it and and i, I will say uh, amanda because i think that's a really good question and i know some people also are like well i only drink red wine you know so is this gonna is this sure. gonna work uh you know at, at emp but yeah. but i do remember when i was there in december we had only one white pairing i think we started with the trimbach the riesling mm -hmm. from alsace and then we had yep. chinon we had i think a northern rhone we had a, Rio a rioja we had a chianti and we had bordeaux yeah. So, and, and it worked all, it all worked. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause I had this conversation a couple of months ago. I was at an event, um, in Sonoma and we were, we were actually, we were working with, uh, we were having an Indian dinner. I was an Indi Indian chef. Um, and we were doing it with lots of different sparkling and lots of like, you know, traditional California wines, sparkling wines, Pinot, Chardonnay. And it's interesting because I think we've, I, at least, uh, you know, in, in my cohort, it, it's always been Indian food works really well with natural wines. 
which they do. But I think like when we started pairing them with other types of wines, we were like, oh, this is can actually be really amazing. And so I think pigeonholing ourselves as wine professionals into these more traditional wine pairings can, you know, it's, I think it's important to know what the fundamentals are. I think it's important to know what the rules are, but it's also important to know that it's okay for the rules to be broken sometimes. And it's okay to just drink what you like. And it's okay Mm -hmm. to, to try some things. And to your point, like, all right, so you're going to have a little asparagus, you're going to have some cabbage, you're going to have some other great vegetables, like open the red wine. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to have a great glass of wine and some cabbage. Like, okay, what's, what's the big deal? It's okay. Try it out. And you sort of the Use also the technique in the kitchen. Like if you have the chance to have a grill mm-hmm. at home, well, grill them. And you will see yeah. that like just those like smoky and like this, uh, those burnt flavor almost like they work so well with red wine and they help to actually kind of like elevate those vegetables in a way to really make sense with, with a bottle of red wine. It's 2023, y'all. Break some rules. Chef home <laughs> broke all the rules and he did okay. Gabrielle's breaking some <laughs> rules as well. Vanessa, are you breaking any rules in 2023? Oh, um, probably a lot, but I'm not going to tell you what they are yet. <laughs> <laughs> Smart girl. Yeah, don't break the rules and tell anybody. Just break the rules and then just have a sly smile on a podcast. Uh, we've got a few questions from the audience that I want to ask before we wrap up. We uh, we talked a little bit about Sauvignon Blanc, uh, but what is the best plant-based cheese to pair with Sauvignon Blanc? Do you have any, any plant-based cheese? dairy that you really no. I know, know Miyoko's is, Miyoko. is a favorite um we've talked about them a little bit uh there's some really great ones anymore you know plant-based dairy is or dairy uh, alternatives have been, become really great I mean you guys are making your own so you probably don't use anything yeah. like that <laughs> and and we actually don't have a cheese course right now uh it's not it's not necessarily the direction that we we take we take the the menu at the moment, but we do receive like very often some sample of like some company who will make like like especially with cashew cashew mm-hmm. and like mm. uh, a lot of nuts like this, and it's getting better and better. Like yeah. like and again, I am French. I <laughs> I have a big history of eating cheese of very different <laughs> variety, uh, and and it's very often that I'm like sitting down and oh my god, this is really delicious and yeah. so convincing. Um, how do I pair my powerful tannic red wines with plant-based dishes? We kind of touched on this a little bit. Uh, it sounds like preparation is kind of key, right? Lean into the grilling, the roasting, charge. Use a little bit of olive oil. Like, uh, try to try to bring a little bit of sucrosity and sweetness and, and, and richness into your dish and a little bit of texture, like this roundness. And like basically trying to find and trying to use... Uh, element and component is gonna cover a little bit your palate, mm. uh, which is ultimately what a, a steak will do with uh, with the natural fat present yeah. in the steak, and and obviously the tannin will play with with the blood and 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 all those things. But um, it's really using technique in the kitchen and your preparation and like adapting that uh, to to yeah to make it work. Yeah, you mentioned it before, and I, I think this goes for traditional non-plant based as well. Texture yeah. is such an important and crucial part of the pairing. People do not pay attention to texture enough. I think texture is my favorite thing to pair be- beyond even flavor when we're talking about bitterness, astringency. Like texture is so important. And it's also one of the like one of the things that personally when I when I talk about pairing and I and I think about pairing, like I I really focus myself on texture because two people in a room will not have the same perception of the level of bitterness, for example. Totally. But they will feel bitterness. Totally. Two people in the same room will not necessarily feel the aroma of cherry because maybe the grandma of one was making an amazing cherry pie when he was a child <laughs> and like cherry pop up in mind every time he think about it when the other person is maybe allergic to cherry. Like texture is really something that all as human being and as diner and like we, we all have in common at different level again. Uh, but it's, it's so important. It's so crucial. Um, and the last one, I don't know, maybe Vanessa's already answered this with her final EMP <laughs> dish, but what is the most unique pairing EMP has done since going plant-based? Probably this one. Actually, we're thinking of doing one <laughs> with, with B uh, on the, on the next menu, uh, but that's not finalized yet. So I don't necessarily want to talk about in case things change. <laughs> like I told you, we love to change. Uh, we love to change things. I will use probably, uh, the tofu collard greens with the cumin jus and the chino, uh, from Olga Rafo that we've done. Mm-hmm. Ooh. It was, it was such a great pairing. It works so well together. 
And even myself didn't necessarily believe on it at first on the paper, I want to say. And then as soon as I started to, to, to test it, it's like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. And you, you've mentioned Shinon a few times now. I, I think we didn't have a second wine on this episode, but I think if we, if we had, it probably should and could have been oh, yeah. Shinon. And there's so many great ones that Wine Access has. Uh, right now, I, I think I've got like probably six in my Ooh. cellar for my, cause I, and I think Shinon is one of the great food friendly wines on the planet. It's, yes. it's, you know, it's, light but it's textured it's green but it's got really great fruit like it's got all the things that you want especially for plant-based but also for non-plant-based as well so um i'll i'll be sure if you're uh if you're not following us on instagram i'll be sure to throw up some of our favorite chinons that wine access has right now it's basically all of them right now if you just go on the site it's all, it's all of them um i i've, <laughs> I've sent many a chinon to a friend uh, over the holidays. Um, you guys, that is our show for this week. We are so grateful to all of you who are in the wine club that drank with us for this episode. Again, this is the 2021 Massacan Anya. I'm so Me. obsessed with this That's shipment that so this, this, this time. I like, I feel like we just had so much fun <laughs> with it. So if you're loving this wine, please go ahead, you know, snap it, Instagram it, uh, tag us so that we can share that as well. And once again, if you are loving the show, we'd really appreciate you taking the time to leave us a review, subscribe to the show and uh, like this podcast. If you are listening to it and other platforms that allow you to do that, Gabrielle, it sounds like you're in service. And if, if you're, uh, if you're listening to the two? show and you're like, I hear some like mufflings in the background. He's yeah. at work, you guys. He is at a three Michelin starred restaurant that is open seven days a week, uh, trying to do their thing. So thank you so much for not only taking the time, but also taking up space in a very busy restaurant. Um, we yeah. had so thank much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And, awesome. and hopefully Vanessa and I can make it up. Vanessa can go for her third time. I will try to make it for my first visit. <laughs> I've tried before. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Let me know when I'm so there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I sure will. I, I'm in Philly right now. I can be there tonight. Um, <laughs> Don't like to wake <laughs> Well, good. I hope everyone's enjoying their January. Please consider going plant-based for, you know, maybe a day, a couple days, a week, however, however it's comfortable. And don't forget that uh, you can still drink whatever wine you want with it. This has been the Wine Access Unfiltered Show hosted by myself, Amanda McCrossin and Vanessa Conlon. We will see you all next time. Cheers. Mm-hmm.